This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles. I'm sitting in today for Mike Simpson. And we're here, as we always are, to talk about the latest involving the coronavirus pandemic. Another dark milestone is sadly reached in the pandemic. More than one million people around the world have now died from COVID-19. Are we any closer to getting a handle on this pandemic? Do we know anything more today than we did when we started back in March? Well, you know, look, maybe... Maybe it was bound to happen, but the NFL has a coronavirus problem right now. So what does that mean for the season? We're going to find out. Well, you know, they're not playing in a bubble like the hockey teams, you know, the NHL. By the way, congratulations to the Tampa Bay Lightning. (laughs) They're not playing in a bubble like the NBA. I know we're in L.A., but go Heat. (laughs) <laughs> Let's see what happens, not only with the NFL, but with Major League Baseball, who starts their playoffs tomorrow. <laughs> you you have your likings and your not likings. Listen, we're all fans of something. <laughs> I just happen to choose my, 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 my fandom a little bit more judiciously than just going huh. along with the winners. That's perfectly fine. The pandemic is changing the trade relationship between the United States and China. Is this good? Is this bad? And if it is, who's it good or bad for? The pandemic, by the way, and and this is something that probably most people don't even think about, but it is actually changing home remodeling. I can't even figure out how that would happen. But Listen, this honey is not doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit later about uh, what might not be the time for renovations. And by the way, I don't mean to sound terrible. It's not that I wouldn't do it if my wife wanted me to do it. It's because I'm not capable of doing (laughs) it. Oh, I see. Okay. (laughs) Because I'd hurt a thumb, I'd break a window. I'm a clod. It's good to know your limitations. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) I am not the most handy man. I am not Mr. You know, Green Thumb. (laughs) I am not, you know, Al, you know, handyman guy. I'm just not. All right, enough of this tomfoolery. Let's get started. We're looking at the 1 million death total across the United States from COVID-19. Dr. Amash Adaja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Doctor, in the months since this pandemic began, have we at least gotten better at treating it? We've learned a lot since March of 2020 about how COVID-19 affects the body. We understand how to diagnose it quickly. We understand what treatments are beneficial. So, for example, we use steroids like dexamethasone in those individuals who are hospitalized and require oxygen. We know what treatments don't work. For example, there aren't very many people using hydroxychloroquine anymore. We also know that there are certain complications to be on guard for, like blood clots, and we're much more rapidly able to prevent them and when they occur to identify them and expedite treatment for them. And lastly, we've gotten much better at managing the oxygen needs of these patients because Early on in the pandemic, people were reflexively putting people on mechanical ventilators when they had oxygen problems. Now we're getting much more comfortable with using BiPAP and CPAP machines and high-flow nasal cannulas because we know from other diseases that we don't want to put people on ventilators if we can avoid it because ventilators themselves cause lung injury. There's been, understandably, uh, a lot of focus now on vaccine trials uh, and leading candidates that may or may not end up being effective. But what about 
you mentioned a, a couple of therapeutics, but therapeutics that are largely used for people who have a more advanced case, more serious a case of COVID, like uh, uh, steroids, that sort of thing. Have we gotten much farther in having therapeutics, uh, at least maybe soon available, that can be used at earlier stages to prevent people from ever getting to the point that they need more serious treatment? That would be the most important tool if we could tame this virus so that it wouldn't cause hospitalization. It would really change the entire way we approach it. There are some drugs that, that are in trials. They are looking at antibody-based therapies, what we call monoclonal antibodies, to be used in high-risk individuals to prevent severe disease or even to prevent infection. Uh, we are also looking at other molecules that could be given to people that have mild illness and hopefully change the course of their disease. But nothing right now is available. So, so if somebody doesn't require hospitalizations, we kind of use supportive care and, and hope that they don't require hospitalization to keep an eye on them. But again, I think it's going to take some time before we have a drug that can keep people from being hospitalized. But when it would, when it would be released would be really a game changer if we could actually find a compound like that. I've read so many, uh, you know, uh, studies that have not been, unfortunately, peer-reviewed as yet, but but a whole bunch of them, and I'm sure you're familiar with many of them as well, from all over the world touting things from vitamin D supplementation for those who are deficient to the use of statin drugs that are normally used for lowering, of course, cholesterol. Is there any merit to any of those in, to repurpose existing and often very cheap drugs? There's not anything that's unequivocal that is uh, that really has been shown to impact the trajectory of disease. There are, however, some suggestions that we know that many people all over the world are vitamin D deficient, and we know that vitamin D deficiency does make you more likely to get a respiratory infection and more likely for that respiratory infection to be severe. So that's why there's a general recommendation that we want people to be replete with vitamin D, have enough of it in their body. But that's not something that we want people to supplement unless they actually are deficient uh, from it. I think there'll be more studies to show definitively how well that actually works. And we are looking at repurposing all kinds of different drugs. People have looked at non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, things like ibuprofen, as well as statins, which have an inflammatory, have an anti-inflammatory effect as well as their cholesterol-lowering effect. And, and this is actually one of the one of the, the places where the hydroxychloroquine study started. But again, it's really important that, that these have to be studied systematically. And right now, there's nothing definitive that we could say, other than make sure that you're you know you know, that you have a adequate nutritional status. That, that's the only thing we can really say in general at this point. I think it will take some time before we're able to tease apart what exactly might also help you from having a severe disease. So here's where I'm going to ask you to, to kind of gaze into a medical crystal ball, if if you will, uh, and and give me your, your sort of best educated guess in terms of as the months progress, because as you know, in, in Europe, they're looking at what might be the beginnings of a second wave, uh, or maybe it's a continuation of the first, who knows. We probably have the same fate in store for us in this country as as well. Um, are we more likely, given the amount of time it takes for vaccines to be proven effective and then eventually distributed and having enough people vaccinated, are we more likely to have useful therapeutics to be game changers sooner than vaccines or the other way around, or maybe both at the same time? When it comes to certain treatments, like we already have remdesivir, we have dexamethasone, 
we have monoclonal antibodies, I think, that, that are in clinical trials. I think those are going to likely be available before the rest of the, the whole population is vaccinated to, to a major degree. Do I think we'll have a Tamiflu-type equivalent? Remember, Tamiflu is the drug we use with influenza. I don't think that we'll probably have one of those that's highly effective before a vaccine, but we clearly will have more tools to treat people when they get hospitalized, and hopefully those tools will decrease mortality, decrease the need for ICUs and mechanical ventilators, and that will still be a win, and that will help us with thinking about how to, how, how to risk stratify this virus, because if it is something that becomes less deadly in the hospital because we get better at treating it, because we have new tools, that's going to change how people uh, react to this and, and how public health authorities will, will make recommendations. Each of the uh, major sports leagues in the U.S. has its own way of handling the pandemic. For example, the uh, NBA and NHL, and you mentioned this uh, earlier, they went into bubbles. Baseball and the NFL are playing games in their regular stadiums, but with little or no fans and a very strict testing protocol. Now, baseball had games postponed due to positive cases on some teams, but now it's the NFL's turn with the start of week four approaching. Yeah, the Tennessee Titans have three players who've come down or at least tested positive for COVID. Five others surrounding the team have tested positive as well. So what does this mean moving forward, not only for the NFL, but my fantasy football team? Mm. You know, I need I need to know, like, what do I do this week? Important question. If they don't play, who do I sit? Will games be postponed? Mark Gannis is president and co-founder of the consultancy firm Sports Corp. Mark, is the NFL paying the price by not going into the bubble? It would have been impossible for the NFL to go into a bubble. Uh, too many teams, too many players per team, too many staff members. Uh, bubble was not a, uh, a, a viable option for the NFL. But actually, you know, it's, it's interesting you, you would ask that because um, the NFL and the players uh, have done a remarkable job so far. And the protocols that are in place uh, are because they anticipated that there would be COVID positive tests just so long as uh, COVID is, uh, is so prevalent in our society. So now you're seeing the protocols kick in. You're seeing the, the, the facilities shut down. You're seeing the players now being trained at home. And you're seeing the testing every single day, uh, it, including when players are uh, the day before games that, that are taking place also. Uh, so uh, this is now happening exactly the way the league planned it so that they could limit the spread of it. Uh, and as we get the testing over the next couple of days, we'll we'll see how uh, how broad uh, the, uh, the the group uh, that is tested positive or how limited it might be. But I wonder if they've thought or or factored in the following into their equation, and that is that I, I'm guessing that they thought, well, you know, the people who are playing these are basically young, very healthy people, and even if they get uh, COVID, they're not likely to get very ill. Except, except. What medical people are now seeing are more and more young, younger people, some who are totally asymptomatic, who end up with very, what appears to be long-term and serious chronic illnesses. Have they factored that into their equation? The, the factoring is to, to limit the uh, exposure and people getting COVID in the first place. Uh, I, I, I can tell you that when the uh, testing took place uh, before the training camps opened, there were more players and, and uh, staff people who had COVID coming into training camp when the facilities opened than have had it collectively uh, in the seven or eight weeks since then. So what's happening is, believe it or not, the people are getting COVID less than if they were going to be in the general society. 
Uh, and it's just the people in the general society are getting it because it's, it's prevalent out there. But when you are getting tested every single day, when you're taking precautions, when you have a, a COVID safety officer for every team checking on everything, and you've got the proximity um, devices. So you, get, you can tell whenever somebody has been next to somebody else uh, within six feet for more than 15 minutes, that's, those are the ways the contact tracing, those are exceptional contact tracing, that's the way you reduce uh, the, the, uh, the spread of it. So I would suggest to you actually, all the people involved in the NFL probably have a lower uh, occurrence of COVID than if they didn't come back and didn't have the league activities in the first place. Let me tell you something, the teams have to deal with it every year during flu season. Uh, every locker room in the NFL goes through at least one flu epidemic and they have to limit that as well. They have to try and limit it. But now this year, there's obviously a lot, lot more focus on any kind of disease, regular flu, as well as as uh, as COVID-19. So what the, the way the leagues have got it set up, there is a taxi squad, an expanded taxi squad, so that any player that either has COVID or was uh, close to somebody who does, so they have to sit down and, and, and be in uh, seclusion for a number of days, that there are replacement players. And let me give you an, an idea of just how far they've taken this. They found after the first weekend on the proximity meters that on the airplanes and the buses, that players were sitting together by position, which is the natural thing that occurs on planes and buses. The offensive linemen sit together, the linebackers sit together, the defensive backs sit together. What they recommended and the players did for, after week one is they sparse, they, they space them out and have offensive one offensive lineman sitting with the defensive back, sitting with a running back, so that you don't have a, a situation where you have a significant potential loss of a whole group on the team. That's the that's the level of, of precision that the NFL, the NFL Players Association, their doctors have taken this. And that's why I think you're going to see that this is going to be quite a limited uh, exposure within the Titans and the Vikings. The United States and China have had a long and a sometimes bumpy trade relationship. You know, it's gotten much more rocky once President Trump tried to change trade deals. But things have been quiet on that front, at least since the pandemic hit. Kevin Fandel is professor of legal studies at Temple University's Fox School of Business. He spoke with KYW's Matt Leon about the trade war and how it's shifting because of the coronavirus pandemic. Politically, I think it's it's soured the relationship quite a bit. Uh, you've heard the rhetoric from the administration here in the U.S. blaming China for setting off this pandemic, or at least not being more transparent about it uh, in, in an effort to maybe stymie the economic collapse that came as a result of the pandemic. Um, but economically speaking, the real impact has been on global supply chains. Uh, a lot of U.S. companies that were you know, very diverse in where they got their components from, whether it's China or Vietnam or Indonesia, uh, they've realized that when an economy like this shuts down, their source of supply is cut off and they need, they have to learn now how to pivot very quickly to other places to get the goods that they need. That's been a big issue and it's led a lot of companies to reinvent their supply chains. The hope from the Trump administration was that those companies would suddenly just come home, insource everything to the United States. But the truth is, that's just not economically feasible for many of these companies. They instead are just looking outside China. Where else can we get these components? Who else has a similar uh, labor market, similar technology, similar industrial development? These are, are questions companies are asking. 
But what COVID has also shown us, I think, is that China has been able to lock down much faster than the U.S. and, and really treat this disease for the threat that it is. And it seems like they're emerging more quickly from it, which is going to put them on a better economic footing coming out. It seems like they're going to be the one of the first players to actually get back on the market, see their consumer demand go up. And that could really position China for more, even more rapid growth. When we talk about a trade war and tariffs going back and forth, these are two monster economies that make the really the the global engine run. How much can you do without destroying yourself in a situation like this? I would guess it's a pretty fine line you're trying to walk between punishing the other country without taking the hammer to yourself. I, that, I think that's the exact question we should be asking is what can we do here to try to get China or whatever target we have in mind to change their policies without completely destroying our own economy? Um, with a smaller country or one that we're not so trade dependent upon, we can do a lot. We can really get countries to change their policies by simply starting a trade war like this. Throw 20% tariffs on Brazil uh, because we want them to, to change some practice and they'll change because they are more dependent on us than we are on them. The difference with China is first, they are a behemoth. Their economy is the same size as ours. So they don't necessarily need to change. And second, we're in such a globalized economy right now. China's looking for raw materials, raw inputs, and we're not the only country providing those. In fact, we're not the main country providing those. We produce manufactured goods, finished goods. China's not buying those. They're making those. Uh, so we're not really able to change Chinese practices by simply putting tariffs on them. What we are doing, however, is harming a lot of our own producers because the trade deficit, as you know, is what Mr. Trump was particularly upset about. We have a huge trade deficit with China. We've had it for uh, almost 30 years now, since the 1980s, and it's been growing every year. So Mr. Trump doesn't like the fact that we are buying more from China than we are selling to them. But the truth is, a lot of what we're buying, about half of what we're buying, are components that go into finished products that we're making here at home. So it's not consumers necessarily buying things at the local Walmart or Target, it's, it's manufacturers that are buying um, whatever they, the metal components or microchip components that they might need to make cars, to make airplanes and, and finished goods that are much more valuable at the end of the day. So we are kind of shooting ourselves in the foot when we put high tariffs on those very things that we need to manufacture our own goods, to keep our own economy sustainable. I think he picked the wrong way to fight this battle. There are better ways he could have gone about slowing down uh, China's economic progress and, and helping to promote intellectual property protections there. Now, we mentioned this a, uh, a little while ago on the podcast about uh, the coronavirus, the pandemic, and remodeling your home. And I know I was kind of scratching my head, like, you know, what would the coronavirus have to do with remodeling your house? I mean, it's, but it turns out that, you know, look, uh, remodeling and improvement, they are considered investments. And the whole idea is to boost home value and get the money back when you finally sell. But 
and I guess this is where it relates, is spending that money now in the middle of a pandemic a you know a smart thing to do? Well, a, a, a lot of those you know projects get done while the people who live in the home leave the home. They go to a hotel, True. they go to other places. That's really not a viable option in the coronavirus world. WBBM Cisco Cotto talked to RealityTrack.com Executive President Rick Sharga about whether home improvement right now is a good thing or a bad thing. People tend to sort of overestimate the increased return on their investment when they, when they put money into the house. Uh, there, there are some areas of the house... Uh, Traditionally, they've been things like uh, bathrooms and, and kitchens uh, that have, have sort of returned. But, but people will sometimes put a swimming pool in, for example, and, and not realize that in the long run, that'll probably cost them more money than what they get back. So when it comes to things like that, a swimming pool, do you think, hey, is this something I want during my time in the house without any real care about whether they're going to get the money back? Uh, exactly. And then I think that's what homeowners really need to be taking a look at is, are they improving the, the I guess, enjoyability factor of, of, of their being at home? And that, that certainly is something we've all come to appreciate during the, the quarantine and, and shelter-in-place era of 2020. Um, but, but, you know, take a look at, at home improvements, um, mostly in, in terms of improving your lifestyle, less so in terms of, of increasing your return on investment. When it comes to actually doing that remodel, again, a remodel, addition, whatever it is that you do, uh, in the end, does it end up costing about what you expect or more? Are there materials prices that are a challenge at times? You know, Cisco, it's funny. We we just had the... uh our house repainted and the floor is redone. Uh, so your, your question is personally painful to me. It, it always seems to cost a little bit more than what you expect. Uh, I, I would encourage people as they're getting into this, unless they're going to do it themselves, to make sure they get two or three uh, bids from, from qualified contractors uh, and, and take a look at, at the, the cost differentials, the, the products that are being used and, and things like that. Um, it, 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 these, these kind of projects can sometimes spiral out of control and cost much more than you forecast unless you go in with a good plan up front. And by the time, you know, you get the walls open, you've been working on the project for a while, you don't necessarily want to say no if all of a sudden there's higher costs. You you sometimes can't say no because it would leave you with a huge hole where your living room used to be. So so again, going in with with a a plan, understanding what's involved in whatever project you're undertaking uh, and working with a reputable uh, contractor if you need help. Uh, all weigh very heavily on your ability to do these kind of projects successfully. How do you battle the emotional aspect of this? Because there's times that you just want certain things for your house and you ignore the budget or whether you're going to get the money back when you sell it. Well, again, I I think people have have kind of gone back and forth on looking at their house as a, a financial tool versus a place where they they live and raise their families. Uh, One of the things we've seen is the length of time uh, the the people are staying in a home has has expanded dramatically over the last decade. The average time somebody's in a house now is about 12 years. It used to be five to seven. Uh, And and in many cases, that's boomers aging in place. And they're spending money on their homes, not necessarily to improve the value of the home, but to make the homes more livable. Uh, And as you as you age, uh, you know, kind of fixing your house to, to make it a little easier to maintain, a little easier to get around. So, so again, I think uh, if, you're, if you're looking to improve the value of your house, there's nothing easier than a fresh coat of paint, some, some fresh carpeting or flooring. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that, that your color scheme is kind of neutral. Uh, but but in, in many cases, 
uh, you're really looking at spending the money to improve your quality of life and and how much you enjoy uh, the home that you're living in. Thanks so much for all the information. That is Rick Sharga, Executive Vice President at RealtyTrack.com. While a safe and effective vaccine will be great news for us humans, the same may not be said for some ferocious ocean creatures. A nonprofit group calls itself uh, Shark Allies. It says about 500,000 sharks may have to die. Oh, that's sad, actually. I mean, I mean, really? Well, but 500,000 sharks may have to die to supply the world with a coronavirus vaccine. Turns out a shark's liver contains oil that is primarily made up of a compound that's used in vaccines to help create a stronger immune response. The group suggests using non-animal alternatives that offer something that's equally effective, such as yeast or you know bacteria, sugarcane, that kind of thing, olive oil. But it turns out that the substance that sharks have from sources other than sharks is more expensive and takes longer to extract. Shark Allies says about 3 million sharks are killed each year in order to get whatever this thing is called. Which squalene. I've been, what is it? Squalene. Squalene? So is that 500,000 on top of the 3 million sharks already killed? Uh, I, I, it may be, but you know, if I, was a, if I was a shark, I would strongly object to this. You know what? This is where unions come in. <laughs> you know, the sharks need to unionize, and you know, I hopefully Shark Ally is strong enough to get these guys a better union because that's a raw deal. No, I've never heard of what. What is? Have you ever heard of squalene? No, squalene. Yeah. I've, squalene. I've, I've never heard of that before. I, I mean, listen. No I know, idea what it is. I know that people that, that are fishing, and I know yeah. others kill sharks for teeth, and they kill sharks yeah. for all sorts of reasons. Um, but I never knew that there was an amino acid in their liver right. that was used for anything. Oh, I know. If if I were a shark, I'd say, A, you, no, you're not killing me. B, you're not taking my squalene, whatever that is. Uh, find yourself some something else. And then swim over to Amity and eat, <laughs> <laughs> eat bum, some bum, people. Bum, 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 bum. You can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on Radio.com and the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And be sure to please hit the subscribe button despite what you've heard today. And if and if it ends up that, that sharks can help with a vaccine, the next time you're in the ocean, kiss a shark. Well, no, don't do that. <laughs> I hope our attorneys don't hear the end of this program because don't kiss a shark. Don't kiss one. Unless it's an attorney. (laughs) 